Boy, what a privilege it is to be able to gather together to remind ourselves of the truths of God's word, to hear those truths sang to us, to hear each other's voices sing of God's goodness, of his holiness, and, and yet to be reminded of the fact that, that we get to come into his presence. So thanks for joining here with us. We're, we're grateful. Um, hopefully, if you are visiting with us, you are welcomed. Um, if not, I want to say welcome to you. Thanks for being here with us. If you came through one of the doors in the back and you got a little welcome card, please fill it out and give that to whoever's back there at the wall of books and exchange that for a free book. We'd like to say thanks to you and also find out if there's any way we can serve you or any way that we can answer any questions you have about the gospel, about who Jesus is, or about our church, too. So thanks so much for being here, and thanks for everybody else for coming out on a rainy day. Um, we don't take for granted our members, so thanks for being here. Um, sometimes it's hard to get up when the rain is kind of coming down and soft, and, and so don't be thinking about that right now because you'll fall asleep, okay? So um, turn in your Bibles. We are continuing in our series in the book of Judges. We are in Judges chapter 3. Last week we saw how Othniel was used by God to bring rescue, to deliver, and this week we're going to look at, at verses 12 to 30, and we're going to look at really something unexpected. So I want you to be reading this as if this is the first time you've ever read it before, because maybe you've heard the story, but as you read it, the story is shocking. So let's, let's read it together. God's holy inspired word for us. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. Because what they had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Malachites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. But when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols, Neil Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw the doors of the roof chamber locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still didn't open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there their Lord lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me. 
For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of the varied accounts in Scripture, that each and every one of them is breathed out by you and is for our good and is profitable for our instruction. God, thanks for bizarre stories like this that surprise us, that teach us about you and your surprising Savior. God, I pray that you would let us have ears to hear, that we wouldn't be dull like the Israelites at the beginning, Lord, here, when they, they were dull and they continually just turned back again to sin. Lord, would you, would you awaken our hearts and minds, Lord? Would you use this story to, to arrest us, to, to turn us back to you, to, to teach us to hope in you? And Lord, I pray that you would awaken us by your Spirit. Enable each and every one of us to hear from you, to apply your words, because God, apart from you, we can't apply your words. But Holy Spirit, we know that you are able to make us able. So we ask you to enable us to apply your words, Lord, and for me to preach your words, God, something I'm not able to do on my own. But Lord, we put our hope and our trust in you, in Jesus' name, amen. Back in 2004, there was uh, a movie by a guy named M. Night Shyamalan, and it was called The Village. Um, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you saw that Village movie or not, and I'm, I'm not encouraging it, but um, I watched it, and it had all kinds of twists and turns, and it kept me engaged because it had surprise after surprise. And it was all about these people who were living in the 1800s, they were cloistered from everyone else, and, and they had a forest around them, and there were these creatures that they were concerned about, don't go into the forest because these creatures out there, outside, will get you. And they lived in fear, they lived in isolation, but it turns out, spoiling the movie, but it's been 18 years, so if you haven't seen it, too bad. It turns out that the enemy was not all these creatures out there, the enemy was really within the enemy was, was one of their own, was posing as that creature to keep them from going into the woods. And then it turns out, what, what it was, was this was really the 20th century that these people were living in. And they had fled the outside world because of all the evils out there. And then, what you discover is that, no, the biggest evils are within their own community. They can't, no matter how much they protect their kids from all the evils outside, evil still lurks within the human heart. For all those parents' attempts at isolation from pain and evil, they couldn't escape themselves. And in a similar way, as we approach this passage, it's meant to surprise us like, like a good movie. It's, it's got unexpected twists and turns. The whole passage is full of unexpected things, surprising things, shocking things. You know, we can read the Bible and, because we've heard the stories a hundred times, not read it the way that the original readers would have. They would have seen this as very unexpected for many reasons. It was unexpected because after Othniel, the first judge, the first deliverer, really, the first savior of Israel, after Othniel, they had 40 years of rest, a completion. An entire generation lived in rest. They had learned, hopefully, from the past where Israel turned to sin, and yet they hadn't learned that. And so here we find it's unexpected, the people again 
did what was evil. And that phrase, it repeats itself throughout the book. Again, it's unexpected. What's unexpected is that the real enemy is themselves. The real enemy is not from without. Those without are actually just used to turn them back to God. The real enemy is, is their own sin. They need deliverance from their own sin. They need someone to break them free of the cycle. And then what's expected is there's an unexpected Savior in this passage. That word for deliverer is the same word we have for Savior. It's actually more often translated as Savior in the Old Testament. And it's an unexpected Savior that God raises up. He raises up this left-handed Benjamite. And it's graphic, and that's unexpected. If you're thinking the Bible is a tame story about tame things, it's pretty unexpected when he describes how this assassin kills this king. And then it's even more unexpected what happens after that. And you don't expect to find humor, and yet most of you did, at least. A lot of you chuckled in the midst of this graphic story the author is showing how foolish the king of Moab is and makes him look foolish. And then it's an unexpected victory. You wouldn't have expected this assassin to be the leader and lead them into victory. And, and all these things are meant to set us up to see that, that God's salvation from our sin and the ways he does that, it's surprising. God's salvation from our sin, it's, it's surprising. It's very surprising. But what, what do we make this whole story, right? What, what do you do with that? Is, is this a moralistic story where like, be like Ehud, right? Be an assassin, make your own knife, kill your enemies. That's not what we're meant to do. It's not even, be, don't be like Ehud. This is not a moralistic tale. This is for us to see something about God and something about the way that he delivers, something about his deliverer. I think the very beginning, we're supposed to see something here that, that maybe you didn't get sickened by, but we're supposed to see that, that the sin and the discipline that follows it are sickening. The sin and discipline are sickening. That's what we're meant to see to begin with. Is, now, now, sometimes, because this is Judges, you're going to read the cycle over and again. It's actually seven times throughout the whole book of Judges. The first was already in the introduction, and then the, la the, the next one was in the story of Othniel. And then you're going to see it five more times after this, this, this cycle of sin, where the people of Israel again did what was sinful, again did what was evil. The people of Israel returned to their evil ways, and, and I think that's meant to sicken us. And then it's also meant to be sickening to see the discipline these were the hated Moabites who God was strengthening because their sin was so sickening. And, and I think that's meant to make us a little sick to our stomachs. Like, like, have you ever eaten something that made you sick and you thought, I don't ever want to eat that thing again? Or have you ever drank something and you're like, I don't ever want to drink that again? When I was a kid, I, was, I didn't realize that um, I was allergic to, to strong red dye. And so when I was a kid, I loved fruit punch. And my parents would give me fruit punch, and I would drink fruit punch. And then later on that night, I would always end up throwing up. I would get sick. And, and, and I, but most of them when I had fruit punch, it was when, um, when I was eating pizza. And so I wasn't sure, is this pizza, which would be sad? <laughs> or what is this? And so I finally figured out, oh, no, it must be something in the fruit punch um, that's making me sick. And so I don't ever want to have fruit punch again. And I, I, I don't ever want to go near that stuff because I, I remember what it does to me. But it took me a while to figure that out. It took me years of getting sick to figure it out and to actually start to hate fruit punch. Now, I, I don't care if you like fruit punch or not. You can like fruit punch. That's okay. 
But what this story is meant to show us is that time after time, the people of Israel continue to sin. And what is that sin? Always results in this sickening discipline. It always results in the discipline of the Lord because they continue to return to this gross sin. I think it's made, meant for us to see that sin is really sickening. And for us not to take this for granted or think, take it lightly. And you know as Christians, sometimes when we sin, we can take it lightly. But this book wasn't just written for people on that day. It was written for people on our day as well. And it meant for us to see that that sin is not something that's tame, not something we can toy with. Because although we have no fear of ultimate judgment, God still does discipline. And so sin is meant to be sickening in this passage. Sickening that they had 40 years of rest and yet they turn back again to their old wicked ways. It's sickening that the Moabites were the ones that God Look down your passage, it says that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, against his own people. And then it tells us the reason, because they had done what was evil. The mere fact that they needed such harsh discipline was meant to make us not want to go there. Not want to return to the very things that, that God has saved us from, delivered us from, and given us rest from. After each and every rescue, after deliverance from slavery, after God saves them, again they did what was evil. I think that word's meant to strike us. Again. After 40 years of rest. Again. But you know what? We can grow accustomed to sin. We can grow accustomed to sin in the Bible. And Oh, sure, of course they return to sin. We can grow accustomed to sin in our own lives. And it's easy to lose sight of God's salvation. And that's how they got to that place. They had, they had grown unthankful and they were no longer aware of God's salvation. They had grown accustomed to God's salvation and taken it for granted. And because of that, they became complacent with their own sins. And doesn't that happen in our own lives? It's easy to get used to God's rescue. We can start to feel like we deserve it somehow. Each of the cases where people forgot, they turned away from God. They turned back to evil, and it's clear this is what they deserve. It says because they did evil in God's sight. But it's difficult to read each time because each time God disciplines them, he uses people and nations that aren't good. They're, they're downright evil to bring about his purposes. God uses nations, their people, their armies, their leaders, and the kings to bring Israel to a place where they're going to experience pain and awaken to their need for God. And sometimes in our lives, God uses pain and difficulty to awaken us to our need for God and our dependence on him no matter what. He even uses Moabites. Now, if you know who the Moabites were, they were, they were relatives of the Israelites. He uses their own relatives, people who were previously afraid of them. When, when, the, when Moses led the people of Israel through the land of Moab, the Moabites were fearful of them because they had heard about what God had done. They were fearful of the Israelites. The Israelites were actually told to leave the Moabites alone because they were relatives. Now, it's kind of crazy. They were, they were not the kind of relatives that you want to get together with for Christmas. The Moabites, the Ammonites, they were descendants from incest between Lot's daughters and their father. The Malachites, they were descendants of Esau. They were relatives, but they were to steer clear of them. And they went after foreign gods, false gods. But all these nations would have resented Israel. So it wasn't hard for Eglon. So it seems like human means that that really was the cause, the purpose. Eglon, the king of Moab... They resented the Israelites. They resented them because Abraham had gotten the promised land. Lot, Moab, they had gotten this other land. And, and, and felt like they got, got second best. Esau and his descendants similarly were jealous of Israel. So it wasn't hard to gather. So it seems like the purpose is the man that gathered his people. But we ultimately see that no, it's the purposes of God that brought these things to bear. 
And isn't that true as we look around the world today and wonder why do bad things happen in all these places? Why are things happening all over the world? What's the purposes of God at work? Even if we don't understand it, even if it seems like mere human means. And they take possession of the city of Palms, probably this oasis near Jericho, and they take possession of this coveted land, this territory that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. And God was the one behind the people serving Eglon, the king of Moab. And there's some irony here because the the people of Israel, they wanted to serve foreign gods. And so God let them. And then he made them serve the leader of the nation with foreign gods. And then 18 years is meant to shock us. It took them 18 years to cry out. But you know how long does it take us to cry out to God when we're stuck in our sins, when we're stuck in discipline? The fact that it took them 18 years is, is too long. We're meant to be sickened by that. Say, how could, they, how could they go 18 years? But you know how many cycles do we go through in our own lives of, of going back, turning back to our own sins and, and not turning to our Savior, not crying out to Him? What we're meant to see is that we, we need a Savior. They need a Savior. We need, God's people need a Savior, right? Sin and discipline are meant to sicken us and meant to make us aware of our need for the Savior. Is that the effect that your own sin has on you? Do you does your own sin cause you to, to hope for, to look to the Savior? Their sin and discipline are sickening, but here's the other thing we see is that the Savior is surprising, and we see that all the way from verse 15 down to 26. The Savior is surprising. Their sin and discipline is sickening, but the Savior is surprising. Here's what's surprising. Again, God delivers them when they cry out. They, they turn back to their sin, and God is still faithful. Even though never once do, is it, does it say that when they're crying out, they're repenting. No, they cry out. It's out of pain, out of desperation. They're, they're not really, truly repentant. And yet, the Savior here, the way that he provides is surprising. And Ehud, he is one unexpected Savior. Now, the people in that day would have been more aware of the fact that both Benjamin and the left-handedness are two things that the author is drawing attention to that are meant to surprise us because Benjamin was the smallest of the clans. He was the 12th son of Jacob, uh, Israel. And as the 12th son, they had the smallest clan, the smallest tribe. And, and nobody thought much of the Benjamites. And then what was even more shocking is this Ehud, he's described as left-handed, you know, how does God save us in the Old Testament? With his righteous right arm, with the strength of his right hand. It's, it's, the right hand is always a picture of strength. And yet God raises up this obscure Ehud from this small tribe. And by the way, the, the tribe of Benjamin, it means son of the right hand. And so there's some irony in this too. This Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of the right hand, is left-handed. And most likely it's because his right hand was injured because the word it uses saying he was, his right hand is actually, his, his right hand was bound or it was, it was incapacitated. So he was most likely crippled in his right hand. He was unable to use his right hand. And he would have been considered less able. He would have been considered weaker. You know why? Because they fought with their right hands. They were they used swords with their right hands, and to not have the right use of the right hand would have been seen to be less than. His left-handedness is, is drawn attention to here because it was thought of as weaker. No one expected a seemingly weak Savior, and that's not the one you'd expect to rescue Israel. 
Most likely, why they, it says, the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Most likely, why they sent him is because they didn't want to upset Eglon. And, and who is the least threatening person? It's the person whose, whose right hand is mangled and crippled. And so they send this, this person who doesn't have use of his right hand. They send him to take tribute so that the king is not threatened. So it just shows the subservience of Israel to send a crippled person in their place. They didn't expect him to deliver, but I, but I love the, I love behind the scenes that we see in, in verse 15, it says, but the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. He raised up a person that they don't, didn't look for, they weren't expecting. And God was working in and through their decisions, just like he does through ours all the time. And the people of Israel, they sent him to give tribute to their, their overlord, Eglon, and and the irony is that their willingness to sacrifice to foreign gods ends up in their sacrificing and serving a foreign king. Isn't that what happens with us in our own sin, though, right? We give in to idolatry and we end up serving that idol. If we give ourselves over to sin, we become a slave to that sin. And so you see here this enslavement, this, they're having to pay a tribute because it's costly. They pay a tribute to their overlord, their foreign god, their foreign leader. It's normally paid to keep, keep the foreign king happy, to keep him from raiding them. It was a form of extortion for protection, and it was the subjugation of the people of Israel to the foreign Moab. But Ehud, he's, he's not having any of it. He's, he's got a plan. He's, he's, he may or may not be aware that he's been raised up as a deliverer, but, but God's using his purposes. He's using Ehud's bold faith, by the way, because Ehud is bold. He's a man who doesn't have the use of his right hand, and so he makes this short sword, and he probably puts it on the inside of his, his thighs. He measures it, so he goes, where will it go? How can I hide this? And he's planning, he's plotting, and God's using his plans and his plotting. And Ehud saw his appointment as an emissary as a, as a chance to be free of this gross king. And so he puts it in an unexpected place on his right thigh where no one would expect it because they would have expected all warriors to, to draw the sword from the left if they're right-handed, and so no one would have expected it there. He had faith that he could do it even if the people might not have had faith and they seemed timid. He was bold. The Savior's surprising in the way that he saves is even more startling, isn't it? He goes and he presents this, this tribute, this offering to Eglon, the king of Moab, and, and he gives it to him. And then he goes, he seems to leave. Now, by, by the way, this, this tribute, is, it's important to know that it's most likely grain. The people of Israel, what was their main produce? It was grain. And so what would they have had to pay tribute with? It would have probably been their food. And, and so there's some pictures here that we're meant to get. Ehud is very fat. And by the way, at the end of the chapter, when it describes his men as very stout, it means they're large too. They're well-fed. And why is it doing that? Just to draw attention to fatness, and fatness is bad? No, it's because they're saying that Israel gave them of their produce, and the foreign gods got fat off of Israel while Israel starved. And then Ehud, he presents this plentiful tribute to Eglon, and then it says, now Eglon was a very fat man. And you meant to get this picture of this person who groaned fat off the sufferings of God's people. And that word for very fat, it means exceedingly or in abundance. And there's this picture of this huge, exceedingly fat, gross man. And his name actually, it means bull calf. And there's this kind of implication that he's like a fatted 
calf, and he's about to be slaughtered by God. As the Israelites are reading that, they would have seen, oh, his, his name means bull calf, and he was very fat, and oh, they know what's coming. Ehud, who was confident in what he was planning to do, he takes the initiative, he's cunning, he's bold, and he, he goes back with them to these, it says to the idols, Neil Gilgal, but it's, it's most likely the statues or the, the rocks that they had set up as a remembrance stones that the Israelites had set up when Joshua came across the river. They met at Gilgal. They put up remembrance stones as a place to remember, and they were also the same place where false gods that they had set up. So Gil, he comes back to this place, and when he gets to there, it's probably a couple miles outside the city. He turns back on his own, knowing what he's going to do, thinking, I don't need those men with me. I'm going to go on my own. And so he turns back around. He goes back to the king on his own. And he says, I have a secret message or a secret thing for you. And just like his sword was double-edged, his words were too. They had a meaning for Eglon. He was thinking, oh, you have some, some good thing, some good news, some good secret thing for me. And yet we know that, oh, yeah, God has a secret thing for him. And so he says, silence everybody. He sends all of his people out because he's, he's expecting to get something. He doesn't want anybody to hear. But it's really foolish. And we're meant to see that. He, it was foolish of him. What a fool. Ehud lulled Eglon to thinking he was an ally and told him he had a secret message from God. And so Eglon, he, he stands up expecting to hear an oracle, probably out of superstition because he's going to hear a message from a false god. So he stands up. He rises from his seat, and then this says in verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. He dealt a death blow to Israel's enemy, and it was decisive. Not to get gory details, but with one thrust, he killed him, so most likely it went up into his body cavity, probably severed his heart. The sword was... About 18 inches, the, the handle was probably a couple more inches than that. Probably didn't have a cross beam because it goes right in. The whole thing gets sucked in and went all the way in, kills the king. And it, and it gives us this graphic thing that the fat closes over the blade. His, the very thing that he got fat off of the Israelites was his demise. The fat closed in over the blade. He didn't pull the sword out of his belly. And it's this picture of grossness. And it says, then the dung came out. Eglon defecates himself and dies. It's a violent, it's a disgusting picture. And it's a little humorous. And it's shocking, right? And then it says he goes out in the porch, he closes the doors, he cleverly locks it behind him, he escapes, he, he sneaks away undetected in all of his actions. It didn't say that God did any of this specifically, but, but God was the one who raised him up. God was the one who used his faithful initiative to bring about his plans. And, and so his attendants, they find the doors locked, and they're like, oh no, he must be using the bathroom, probably because they also smelled it. And they're a little embarrassed. They're like, man, he's using the bathroom for a long time. My goodness. I'm sure that everybody's wife can relate to that at times. <laughs> That wasn't in my notes. <laughs> so the, the servants are out there and they are embarrassed and they're like, my goodness, he's like, it's taking so long. He's like, you go in there. No, you go in there. I'm not going in there. Finally, one of them's like, oh my goodness, something's wrong. This is way too long. An hour is far too long. They didn't even have National Geographic back then. And, and so uh, they wait they go in, they take this key, they open it, and there their Lord lay dead on the floor. 
But Ehud had escaped. He had made it out of the city. And, and what we see, it's not just an isolated salvation. It's, it's not just an assassination. It's the beginning of complete deliverance from their enemies. The sin and the, and the discipline is sickening the beginning. And then the Savior is surprising. And then the third thing we see is that their salvation is stunning. It's a stunning salvation that came from it. He makes it all the way to Syria, about a mile, two or three miles from Jericho, and then he blows his trumpet to his people, and then most likely what happened is they blew trumpets, and then eventually all of Israel's rally. We don't know how long that took, but what we see is the effect is what we see, because the author is trying to get us to see the effect was that this, this was not just an isolated assassination. This was the salvation of the Lord, and his salvation was surprising, and it was complete. The people of Israel gathered to him and led him into war. And I love it in verse 28. He says, follow after me. The Savior calls him to follow after him. And as they did, he says, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan. And they were, it was strategic. And so they, they didn't allow any reinforcements. And they, they didn't allow retreat either. They cut them off. And so it was a decisive victory. And it says they killed at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all strong. In contrast to the left-handed Ehud and these timid Israelites, the Moabite men that they struck down were all strong and they were all able-bodied or stout men. And that able-bodied word means they were, they were stout, they were big, they were full. They were men of valor and yet not a man escaped. Not one. What's it trying to show us? That Yahweh's deliverance is complete. Yahweh's deliverance is complete, and this salvation, it's stunning. What you don't expect is that this left-handed Benjamite, crippled in the right hand, you don't expect him to be God's means of salvation. And it says, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. Do you notice that, that phrase repeats throughout the passage? They sent the tribute by the hand of Ehud. And that's been for see, oh yeah, they sent it by what seemingly weak means they sent this tribute. And the Lord has strengthened Eglon's hand, but now the very hand that the Lord had strengthened, the Lord took down under the hand of Israel. Strong was defeated by the left hand of the weak. The land was quiet and peaceful and arrested for 80 years, several generations. So what in the world do we take away from all this? Well, it's easy to see that, that this sin is meant to sicken us. And it's not meant for us to say, how could they do that again? But it's meant for us to say, oh, well, that's us. That's us. We, we easily forget. We easily return to our own sins. We keep doing the same things. And we deserve the just punishment of God. Now, thanks be to God that we don't receive ultimate punishment. Ultimate punishment has already been paid by Jesus Christ for all who put their hope in him as their savior, as their ultimate deliverer. But it's also meant to make us avoid discipline. Because that's not what God wants. He wants us to enjoy him. He wants us to turn from our sins. To not go back to the same things that once enslaved us. We've been set free from sin. We're no longer enslaved to sin. We have a savior. He set us free. He's broken the bondage to sin. And yet, it tells us in Romans 6 that if we submit ourselves again to sin, it's like submitting ourselves again to slavery. We're, we're meant to see that and say, no, I don't want to do that. And it's also meant for us to say, we need a Savior, though, because we don't have the power to do that on our own. 
But in Christ we do because he knows what it is to say no to sin because he was tempted in every way like we are, but he actually resisted. So what's more impressive is someone who resists sin than somebody who gives in to sin. And he's the one who instructs us. He's the one who teaches us. He's the one who enables us. Do we turn to him? Do we follow him? We're also meant to see that all human activity is it's divinely orchestrated by God. And that's meant for us to have confidence in God. Not, we're not trying to read into human events. We're not reading into things that happen in our lives and assuming that everything that bad happens in our lives or, or everything that happens in our lives is, is discipline from God. No, that's not it at all. It's not, we're not trying to, meant to see that. But what we are meant to see is that God is behind everything and we can rest in, we can trust in him and his ways. And he always has good purposes intended for us. Even when he is disciplining, he still has good intents for us and he brings about good for all those who are in him. Not for his enemies, but for those in him. I think we're meant to read this and walk in the fear of the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs tells us. To be sickened by our own sin. Proverbs 26, it tells us of, of what it's like to keep doing the same thing over and over again. This is like a dog that returns to his vomit. Is a fool who repeats his folly. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than him. And, and what it's meant, this passage is meant for us to be humble and not assume we're wise in our own eyes. You know, it's making, as we've been going through Judges, it's making me want to draw closer to the Lord. There's a quote from Barry Webb that, that's helpful. He says, isn't it astonishing to think that God keeps saving his people even though they keep sinning against him? And shouldn't every new instance of it cause the most profound gratitude to well up within us? Without this, we would all be lost because the fact that is that this side of heaven, we will go on sinning even though it's not our intention to do so. And if God should ever abandon us to the full consequence of our sin, all hope would be gone. There are two amazing things in Judges. Israel's persistence in sin and God's persistence in saving them. And the second is the most astonishing by far. We're meant to be astonished. We're meant to be astonished by God's own rescue of us from our sins, his own mercy and kindness, and that's meant to keep us from sin. Sometimes you might read an account like this. You might think, well, that's not fair that God did that to them. They didn't deserve that treatment. Maybe you can begin to question God's character, his goodness, his integrity. And I think this, if that's our response, this account is meant to humble us. For us to humble ourselves under the Lord's hand and say, Lord, we don't understand. But we know that you have our good in mind no matter what. And it meant for us to cry out to him like the Israelites cried out. We're meant to cry out. No matter what happens, humble ourselves to see that, that God loves us and desires what's best for us even when we can't see it, even when we don't know it. For us to humbly depend on God. And then it's also meant for us to see that Although God raised up Eglon, God was still ruling those who seemed like they were beyond punishment. God rules even those he uses discipline. Another quote from Barry Webb says, the posturings of the apparently invincible are ridiculous. But in this case, the humor has theological groundings. The tyrants of this world do have real power. They may be used by God to discipline his people as, a, as one was, but they do not have absolute power. Their days are numbered. 
Their assumption is they're invincible and never will be called to account for their actions. It is absurd, for it is God, not they, who rules the world and determines the fate of his people. And the one that gave them their power can and will end it when he chooses to do so. He's already exposed their hollow claims for what they are and their death and the resurrection of his Messiah. And then, and then we see some humor in here. I think it's meant to see that, you know what? Those who think they're high and mighty, who've gotten fat off the suffering of others, like, like Psalms 2, 4 says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. They think they're high and mighty, the Lord will bring them low. He laughs and holds them in derision. We can trust in him to exercise his justice, his judgment. And we need a savior, but the savior God provides is surprising, isn't he? See, Isaiah 53 tells us about the savior we've been given. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty we should look at him. That's not the kind of savior you would expect, right? No beauty we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. What kind of savior is despised and rejected? What kind of savior has no beauty that we should desire him? A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. That's not like us. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away as for his generation. Who considered he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil of the strong because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That is unexpected. But yet we have an unexpected Savior, a better Savior than Ehud. Ehud did not give his own life. And yet, the Savior we need is someone to give his own life, someone who would deal completely, decisively, not just with our outside external enemies, but with the real enemy, the enemy that lies within. We need a Savior who could do what, that, what they were completely and unwilling and unable to do, what we are unwilling and unable to do, to deal a death blow to sin once and for all. Through his death on the cross, his salvation was not expected. It was shocking, it was graphic, it was violent. And then now in his resurrection, Jesus tells us to follow him. And then unlike Ehud, he leads us into true and lasting victory. Victory doesn't last just temporarily. You don't have to stay stuck in sin. He's, he's, he's given us the victory already. And he uses our weakness. And he's the one who makes us strong. And his salvation is complete. We can trust in him. Look to the Savior. Follow him and, and he will give victory over all our enemies. Amen? Let's pray, and if the band come up, we'll close the song.
Father, thank you for your word. Would your word penetrate deep into our hearts? Would your word cut like a two-edged sword, Lord, piercing division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow? Would your Lord word bring conviction? Would your word bring freedom? Would your word bring deliverance? Thank you for the Savior. Would we be grateful? Would we live lives of gratitude? Would we follow you, Lord, and, and walk in the victory that you have for us over sin? We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.